And of course, he goes on to Apple and they've increased their, since becoming CEO, they've increased their value by $2 trillion, um, which is just remarkable. You haven't seen a CEO succession story like that anywhere else in business history. My guest today is Trip Mickle. Trip led the Wall Street Journal's coverage of Apple and Google, and now he's a reporter at the New York Times covering Apple. He's the author of After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. It's the inside story of the unspoken power struggle between Tim Cook and head designer Johnny Ive after the death of Steve Jobs. I recently sat down with Trip, and we talked about how Johnny Ive's departure in 2019 marked the culmination in Apple's shift from a company of innovation to one of operational excellence, and how that shift cost Apple its soul. Trip, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I, you know, since we spoke last week and uh, had a great conversation, I really enjoyed your book. Really well done. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. Uh, the name of the book, folks, is After Steve, How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. The, the cover is really very cool. That's a cool shot. I never saw that shot. It shows a picture of Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. They're staring up. Where'd you get this picture from? I even... We found it in the archives. It's uh, It was a photograph, obviously, I mean, I, I can only surmise, taken from below um, the two of them as they're looking kind of skyward. And it works out really well because you've got after Steve above them. And those, those are really the three primary figures in the book, Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. And then the third kind of unspoken one who's not on the on the page is Steve Jobs himself. He's kind of a, a ghostly figure that that is just in the background in perpetuity at Apple because because he built built the empire that they all inhabit now. Right. Okay. So I want to tell you right off the bat, I, I really like the book because it it told a story that I didn't know from the inside about products that I use daily, how the products came into existence. And then it gave us a look at the struggle uh, for, as you write here, Apple's, Apple Soul, after Steve Jobs died between Tim Cook, who was the numbers man, straight, uh, totally different than what Steve Jobs was. And on the other hand, you have Johnny Ive, the brilliant, and you have so many great stories in here, what kind of brilliant designer, I think designer is too limiting a word, of visionary, to come up with... Uh, and, and you know, by the way, when I'm reading, when I was reading your book throughout the last week or so, and I took one of the Apple products. Uh, you mentioned, for example, the um, on the on the on the iPhone, the um, icons, and how you described how Johnny Ive wanted them at a certain shape to look not boxy, but to be rounded. And then I looked at the the Apple Watch, and uh, and and, I, <clears throat> and 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 the MacBook. All of these things that you just take for granted as to what makes them so beautiful, you detail in the book how Johnny Guy thought these up and was relentless in getting these materials made perfectly to an extent that is superhuman. Yeah, yeah. They it's called a Bezier curve, and and he was uh, as he as he's wont to do was a natural obsessive about that, and it has <laughs> more points in a Bezier curve than you would in a a typical curve, which. I don't know, might have three or four points to make a rounded curve. One of the the nits that he had um, after designing the iPhone was that the app icons on the iPhone themselves didn't have the same Bezier curve as as the iPhone's physical curvature had. And he he, he constantly had to have been looking at phones and, th you know, looking at the icon and, and finding frustration and the disconnect between what those apps look like you know the the software on the phone and and what the what the hardware the physical aspect of the of the curve looked like. Yeah, it's just absolutely amazing detail. But we're jumping way ahead. So um, first of all, why did you write this book? What made you write this book? Um, well, I, I was covering alcohol and tobacco for the Wall Street Journal in Atlanta, of all things, and before that, I was a sports writer. So. Uh, I didn't gravitate to tech naturally. I was I was asked to move out to Silicon Valley from Atlanta and take over uh, coverage of Apple for the Wall Street Journal. And after landing, uh, being pretty confused about the company and what I was covering, I met with a longtime Silicon Valley reporter, who, you know, 
appreciated some of my frustrations about covering Apple. It's a very secretive company um, and was kind enough to point me in the direction of a possible mm -hmm. story. So if I were you, I would look into Johnny Ive and this place called The Battery. And I began to ask questions about that. And over the course of several years, um, learned that Johnny Ive was, had grown disillusioned inside the company that he'd helped build and rescue from bankruptcy. And I, and I just, I just thought that was interesting. I, I was, I was wondering why somebody who clearly loved a company so much would fall out of love with that same company over a period of time. And, and that was the real genesis and kernel of, of what this, of, of what gave this idea life. Okay. So, you know, uh, my family, well, my sons really, they have been Apple fanatics. Uh, my youngest, my second youngest son, Jeffrey, uh, has been uh, an Apple follower, I gosh, I think since he was 10 years old. So um, he followed everything. And when we were one of the first people to get, in 2006, I think, my sons waited online to get the uh, iPhone, first iPhone. They watched the keynotes, the house goes silent, everyone's in front of a, they're watching the, the keynote, and there's question, answer, back, forth, critique. The, these guys are, are really, uh, every they bleed Apple. They love Apple. And so I've heard Johnny Ive and his brilliance in my house for, since I think I was started listening in 2005 or even earlier. Tell our listeners who this guy is, why is he so important, and the brilliance and, and genius of how he really put Apple, he took the ideas that Steve, the vision that Jobs had, and put them into products that are just absolutely magnificent. Right. Um, he's a British-born industrial designer who was fortunate enough to be born into a family with, with a father who taught industrial design, um, which is, you know, really remarkable. If you think about it, it was almost like he was put on this earth to do exactly what he went on to do. And he landed at Apple in the early nineties and became the head of Apple's design uh, shortly before Steve jobs arrived to take it over. Wait, wait, trip, let and, me just interrupt you a second. Just yeah. a bit of backstory here. This guy's a prodigy from day one, right? He was, he just doesn't, he's not just a designer. Could you just share with us what he was doing in his undergraduate work or before he was, even he was high school, the reverence that his teachers used to have for him. It was, it was fascinating to go back and visit, um, visit both his high school and, and his undergrad where he, where he went to school in, uh, in Newcastle. Um, <laughs> his high school teacher told me, that his work was so good and so polished that he didn't think that Johnny Ive himself was doing it. He thought his father was doing the work and he had to go and, and confront his father and ask him and, and get clarity on the fact that Johnny Ive was in fact doing the work. Um, he just had a sophistication uh, to, to what he was designing and an ambition that was rare as a young, as a young man. And that really took, you know, took to life in, in college um, there's this wild scene where they, at the end of at the end of university at at, at New, Newcastle Polytechnic, which is where he went to study design, they had to put up an array of uh, kind of like three three projects that they'd done on a on a like almost like a giant um, science project, like your kid would do what back in the called? day, but like it's an oversized a, board yeah, those, version those of those trifold. Uh, I forgot those boards what they were called because my kids at every science project. These trifold boards that they had to write out the whole thing with pictures and put them up in their booth. Right, right. And so he does his, and one of the three projects, which I find interesting, was was on money. Um, it was it was called their Blue Sky Project. You were supposed to dream up some futuristic thing that you would hope to change, and his was money. And he developed a pebble sized polished. Um, polished piece of like a medallion that people could carry in their pocket. And the idea was you would put that on a, on a reader when you went to check out at a store and it would immediately transact your charges because he was frustrated that uh, at the time plastic credit cards, which were becoming more popular were so cheap and yet, you know, carried so much value, right? You could charge a thousand dollars on a credit card, but it was on this mm -hmm. flimsy piece of plastic. And the cashier would know what you had spent, but you wouldn't get a you know notification of what you'd spent until a letter was dropped in the mail. So he wanted to circumvent that. This was one of his designs. 
Um, which, 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 be, well, which becomes Apple Pay. <laughs> 30, yeah, 20, as, as teachers say, like to this day, they look back and they think, like, had he dreamed up Apple Pay in <laughs> you know in the late eighties, right. um, year you know like two two decades plus before it was introduced to the world. Um, but it, the person who came through to review his his projects and weigh in on them turned to two of the professors at the school. This was an outside designer, um, a professional and said, well, what's the highest grade you can give somebody? And they said, well, an 80. And they said, well, he said that he was going to give Johnny way higher score than that. It was the highest score anybody had ever received. So there was, there was a real sense that this, that he was a really gifted, talented Wait, we told, designer. Tell about that, that, that poster board, because that, that's fascinating. Which uh, the, the poster board, the, 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 the trifold where everyone has old pictures and he just. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he in contrast to his peers who had these sort of like well designed but somewhat cluttered um, of uh, tri boards, his his was very uh, minimalist. And so he only had a handful of photographs and it was just very well laid out. Um, so the takeaway in the eyes of the professors was he had not only thought through the projects themselves, but also how to illustrate those projects, projects to the world. Um, and that was, that was just a, something he did really throughout his life. There were years later where he did a project for Apple. Uh, he was at a design firm called Tangerine and they wrapped up all the modeling that they had done to ship to Apple. And then he went the extra step to make sure that it was clothes inside uh, tissue paper with a tangerine logo on it. And then t-shirts were placed on, on top of it so that when you unboxed it, it was an experience. And of course, fast forward to today, if you unbox an iPhone, just the, the, the way it slides out of the box and how, how, uh, precisely those boxes are made so that there there's such tension in them. So like, you really feel like you're pulling out something of tremendous value. That's really, you know, his imprint on that. And that's something he did throughout his life. Um, so you, you see flavors of his work in Apple that go all the way back to, to him as a young man when he was just leaving college. Okay. So, and, and by the way, the whole color white, you know, all of these things are thought out. I couldn't believe that. Well, I could believe the depth, but I never thought of all the subtleties of the colors and how they had meetings based on what shade of blue. You know, everything you look at it with an iPhone, uh, the color background, the color of the icons, the shape of the icons, uh, the positioning of them. Uh, should it be in a circle or should it be? We take all these for granted, but aesthetically, it's so pleasing and beautiful that uh, all of these uh, were his design team coming up with just. Simplicity is in, in terms of if it's if it's function, but in terms of its beauty, just unparalleled. Right, right. I think the turn of phrase I used was was he. Uh, it was no exaggeration to say that he redrew the world because his emphasis on minimalist design, which which you know harkens back to some other designers such as um, uh, you know the, from the past like had such an imprint on us that we see it now everywhere. We take for granted just how sharply and, and, and limited the designs are around us in the world and how much those are influenced by Apple itself. Yeah. Even the color of, the, of your, of your, uh, your headphones now, the white and why white, you know, it's just absolutely amazing. So uh, Johnny Ive gets to work at Apple. Uh, Jobs is just amazed by this guy. And he calls him his his uh, his brother. Uh, what was what do you call him? Um, what term did he use? Called him his spiritual partner. Spiritual partner. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, he was he was really a creative soulmate for Jobs. I mean, they they uh, spent a ton of time together. Jobs, and they and they had an interesting and similar way of looking at the world. I mean, Jobs' uh, widow Lorraine uh, recounted how they went on a walk in the garden once in the backyard and came back and started sketching and the next phone and the, the next computer that they made looked like uh looked like one of the flowers in terms of the way it was kind of it, it kind of came off a pedestal and then bent forward just like some of the flowers in the backyard and it was totally inspired by by the walk that they'd had so now when he's in the company uh he is really he creates his own little fiefdom if you will right he he creates a section of the company about 20 guys who have cards, uh, security cards to this, access is granted to 
very, very few into this inner sanctum, and it can be lost if you come in and say something or do something. And Jobs is in there every single day, right? Right. Yeah, I know Jobs, it, w- it was where he went to escape some of the pressures of running an ever-growing business. I mean, it was it was called by people on campus, the Holy of Holies, and it kind of had a different energy than, than other areas of the campus. Like other areas of the campus felt a little more pressured and intense. Um, this was uh, a place where somewhat mellow electronic music played all the time. The designers moved around with kind of a, a, a kind of a relaxed demeanor. I mean, someone compared it to me to like almost like a martial arts studio. Like it just, you know, there was just an intense focus, but, but also kind of, um, I don't know, like a Zen like calm to the, to the space as well. And so jobs enjoyed spending time there. He really did. Right. And from, I remember from the book, you basically said he was there almost on a daily basis. Uh, mm-hmm. and he had a, a reverence, towards uh, the products. They looked at them in awe and they would, uh, it would be like hallowed objects, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he had a quick eye himself. So, I mean, with jobs, you know, um, he could, he could voice some frustration if, if some of the prototypes, you know, didn't live up to his expectations or if he caught some differentiation and there was once he was walking by, you know, said something to the effect of, you know, what is that crap? Um, you know, when he caught a glimpse of a, of a curved, the curvature in an iPhone not living up to the design specifications that they had. And that was, that was kind of what he was able to bring to that space. I mean, he was really a a great editor for Johnny Ive, Um, you know, not, not quite on the scale of Maxwell Perkins and and Thomas Wolf, but, but the the same type of thing, he was able to kind of work with this person who had an, an immense amount of talent and bring product forward that, that, um, that was bordered on artistic uh, in terms of its sophistication. Right. And uh, Jobs puts him really high up there in the company uh, in terms of the hierarchy, because I think it was a flat structure uh, the way um, he created their C-suite. And could you just talk about that? Yeah, everything at Apple at the time Jobs was there really revolved around Jobs himself. He was, somebody compared it to like, um, a starfish where he would just kind of crawl out from the center, crawl, crawl out the legs and do various work with um, people in software design or marketing and, and advertising, or in Johnny's case, industrial design. <clears throat> industrial design, he, he, he said and told his biographer, he put Johnny Ive, you know, as, as he considered him the second most powerful person inside the company after Jobs himself. Um, and that's, that's largely because he, he said that they dreamed up most of the products that Apple made together. Right. So here you have, uh, with Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs, such a close relationship because he takes, uh, Jobs ideas and turns them into real products that check all the boxes of what Jobs has in mind for them. These are the best in class they're beautiful. They're, they relate to the user. Uh, I remember so many times you wrote in the book uh, how it had to, it had to, the, the, the end user had to understand what the product was. You just couldn't pick it up. It had to be some type of relationship between the product and the, and the uh, person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, there was a kind of a fixation and focus inside Apple on, um, on developing things that, people would pick up and intuitively understand how to use it. You know, they, they summarized it with the turn of phrase, it just works. And another, another area of emphasis for, for jobs was borrowed from Polaroid. And that was the idea that the company needed to live at the intersection of technology and liberal arts. So he wanted something that technologists could use in terms of products that was sophisticated enough to satisfy their needs, but also simplistic enough that it was accessible for, for kind of a broader public. And that's really, you know, was most manifested in the iPhone and just the the power and sophistication of that device and is why it's become such an indispensable part of our lives. Yeah. You know, I just want to build up, uh, keep going on with Johnny I for just a few more minutes because then we're going to contrast it to uh, Tim Cook. And uh, I think the more you learn about Johnny Ive and you could uh, really understand where the tension is in this company between 
at this point between Tim Cook and him, uh, because <laughs> you brought up some really amazing stories. I don't know how you, you know, like you spoke to what, hundreds of people that uh, his Johnny's attention to detail, finest qualities, takes on almost a, uh, a supernatural type of power, a superpower. And uh, you relate how they went to, I think, Japan. Uh, why don't you tell that? Oh, yeah, that was, that was one of my favorite stories. Um, you know, they, there's a sense around Johnny from working with him that he, that he may have like x-ray vision. This is from people who work closely with him over, over time. Um, because he could just see things that seem to escape, you know, the, the average person around him. And they go to Japan on this trip relatively like in the early two thousands to check on, uh, the state of manu manufacturing some parts for an upcoming laptop. And they're reviewing, uh, the casing and Johnny holds it up to, uh, the ceiling to see how the light reflects off of it. And he just looks really, really frustrated with it and disappointed. And the person who's with him is in operations, uh, engineer who's, who, who catches the frustration in his eye and, and, and pulls out a red pen that he bought. And he said, look, like Johnny, just tell me what, what is not right about this product and we'll fix it. And this part and we'll fix it. And we'll just show the guys just circle, circle, whatever you need. And Johnny looks at him and says, uh, I've got a better idea. Why don't you give me a bucket of red paint and I'll, I'll dip this in it and I'll wipe off the parts that are right. Um, and, and it was, it, it's that type of like, you know, perf perfectionism that pushed Apple to have really sophisticated looking products, but not, but then also just the eye to catch some blemishes that would escape the the eyes of others was, was so critical to what they did. And that, you know, because nobody wanted to like have him be frustrated like that. They went the extra mile to try to kind of head off those type of blemishes in the future. But what I find fascinating is that, uh, being a supplier of Apple, was really a very symbiotic relationship. Forget about the profit that one made, because and they and they were very, or they still are, extremely um, uh, excellent negotiators in terms of letting you make money, which is you know that's as a shareholder of Apple you want that to be, so they want to squeeze as much as they can. But on the other hand, uh, the more I kept reading through the book, the vendors were pretty cool with that to an extent because they were learning new uh, ways of manufacturing product and dealing and creating material that they can go and market and continue to create for other customers. Yeah, that was a cornerstone of, of, of the operational superiority of the company. It was that they could come in and bring to a supplier a tremendous amount of volume and bring the cash to help invest in, um, and the tooling and the materials that were needed to manufacture things. And in doing so really teach a supplier a new process that it's, it's talented engineers have come up with or dreamed up or teach them how to fulfill the design expectations of, of somebody like Johnny Ive, who just had this, this very sophisticated demand that they needed to meet. Yeah, no, I, I, I remember, I think it was with the, um, with the uh, casing of one of the, I think it was the, one of the MacBooks or one of the casings. They come up with a new uh, way of developing the metal with less percentage of some other material because of the way it had a, the way it worked or bent. I don't remember exactly, but really coming up with a new way, not a, a, a totally different way of creating this material because it had to have that look. Right. I, they wanted to, <laughs> I'll, I'll pull out the anecdote you were looking for, but they wanted to have curvature in the stand of, uh, of, of an iMac um, in the base of it uh, in an aluminum stand. And if they did it with the existing aluminum that was in the world, it would crinkle almost like uh, the surface of an orange does. And it would right. kind of have this crinkly surface and they, they needed to figure out a way to, to get beyond that. So that meant that they had to come up with some new alloys to, you know, a new way of mixing the, the, the underlying, um, I guess the underlying alloys within the aluminum to avoid that so that they could bend, bend the metal in a way that, that would make it pure and polished. Um, when they manufactured this and, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of additions that they would go on to make, you know, it's just, I don't want to get more into it because folks get the book. It's just phenomenal. If you have an Apple product, 
you get this book. I, I, I wish that you had uh, pictures of every Apple product you're talking about so you can see the beauty of what you... Because I, I kept stopping and picking up an iPhone or a MacBook and looking at what you were talking about because it was really amazing. There's one part, folks, I, which just blew me away. Uh, when they were building uh, Infinite Loop, which is Apple's spaceship campus of, I don't know how many zillion, uh, what is it, two, 200 acres or something? Yeah, it's, something. I mean, it's Huge. it's such an enormous yeah. structure that you can lay down the Empire State Building inside the ring and, right. and, and, and put it flat on its side and it would fit inside this this entire ring. But anyway, not to, I don't want to go through with this now because there's just too much to talk about of a way of glass, curving the glass that they wanted. And it was probably the biggest order of glass in, in, in history and uh, how they wanted it done a certain way. But what's so amazing is they wanted it a subtle curve in the glass, figured out back and forth. And I just want to read what you wrote here. Architects working on the project were astounded at how the lofty demands of a tech company had forced the construction industry to innovate. In the years that followed, they would marvel as other buildings, such as the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, featured curved glass, which might have been impossible without Apple Park. Yeah, I, to me that that was one of my one of my favorite details to learn about the book because you think of this company as um, being so superior in in the industry that it dominates kind of the the electronics industry and the, and the smartphone industry. Uh, you don't think of its influence beyond that, and yet here in this one example and their decision to move into the world of architecture and construction, their combination of you know design demands engineering know-how and operational excellence led one of the largest glassmakers in the world to build and construct a huge warehouse, not to mention they have a ton of cash so they could pay for this, right? So they, they built a giant manufacturing facility to, to build this glass. And then that unlocks the potential for architects and construction and people in the construction industry to, to do similar buildings in the future, um, which is just, just kind of mind blowing. I mean, one of the reasons that I find that so interesting is there have been rumors and Apple has worked on a car for a number of years. And when you, when you think about their ability to disrupt and change an industry like construction, um, it can't, it, it kind of tickles the imagination to think, well, what could they do with the auto industry? Right. It's, it's, it's had a lot of, similar thought and similar thinking and approach to its manufacturing process for on the order of hundred plus years. But if Apple came in what, what kind of new thinking would they bring to that, to that marketplace? You know, I remember back in the nineties, I don't remember where I read it, but uh, they were mentioning how everything was becoming more technologically advanced. This was still a time where, where offices had receptionists and you still had fax machines and uh, your office, if you took a picture of the office of the 1990s, late 90s, it's much different than the office of the 1950s. You had a place for a computer and you had to have uh, a phone. Uh, you didn't need uh, three assistants. You, had, you didn't need an intercom system and went through the phone. A whole bunch of innovations, small, subtle innovations like that. And I remember reading there was one innovation that really just stalled out, and that was the phone. The phone was pretty much the same phone that was in the 1930s and 40s. <laughs> and it was shaped a little different, but nothing. Who would have ever dreamed of? what the iPhone became when you think right before it was the Palm it was handspring Palm, uh, Blackberry. It doesn't, you know, a phone without a keyboard. It's you could ever think of something like that. Right. And they face a lot of resistance for that initially until, until they got the product out and in people's hands. And then, uh, once they did the, the number of phones they were selling on an annual basis exploded through the roof. Um, I, I the jobs died and, 2011, that year they were making about 20 million phones a year. Today they make about 200 million, uh, make and sell about 200 million, Amazing. which is just an insane jump in terms of production. Right. Okay. So we'll we'll leave Johnny Ive there because I, I could do a whole show just talking about the innovations. I, I wish I had that book um, uh, made by Apple in California. Uh, mm. You tell me it's not even in print. It's uh, all their or. I saw one thing for $1,000 or so on Amazon, but there was a Swiss version or something like that. But just to look at the beauty of the product for whatever was whatever happened there, put that aside. But Johnny Ive, no question, uh, him and Jobs were uh, spiritual partners. Uh, mm. Without Johnny Ive, there probably wouldn't be an Apple the way we know it, right? There was... 
No, certainly not. I mean, I, you know, just his, his fingerprints, uh, on, on the series of products that define their success that really, I mean, in the eyes of many people who worked there in the two thousands gave rise to this, this period of Camelot and Cupertino, um, was everywhere. He, he designed the iMac, the candy colored computers that did so well. He was instrumental in pushing for white earbuds with the iPod that became the centerpiece of the advertising campaign that was so popular, the silhouette campaign. Uh, he, he d- designed the, the, uh, exterior of the iPhone, um, and then was was instrumental in the development of, of the iPad. And so and the, and the smart, his imprint is everywhere. And the smartwatch. Right. Yeah, and then after Jobs' death, of course, the company's under a tremendous amount of pressure to come up with some new revolutionary product, and it's it's Ive himself who who steps to the forefront and pushes through the development of of the Apple Watch that became. Uh, that's that's gradually become more popular to the point now you, you go into a, an average restaurant in most cities around the around the country and you're going to see at least a third of of people in the restaurant wearing the exact same yeah. watch on there. Well, I'm looking at you now wearing one as well. Yeah, I've got and, one. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, uh, you know I, after reading the book and reading about the development of the watch and they picked the right thing, the the the, the crown had to have be designed certain. I. I told my kids, like, maybe that could be a Father's Day present because I've, I've held <laughs> off from ordering an Apple. And I want, I didn't want something that I had to charge every night, like a simple Seiko, you know, for $100, I don't have to worry about it. But just the beauty that goes into this watch and, and now the biggest screen, amazing. Okay. So you have Johnny Ive, that's one track, and Steve Jobs is that relationship there. Then you have another guy who is totally different. This guy grows up in the South takes a different track. This guy's brilliant organization, logistics and everything, and that's Tim Cook. And he grows up in a, in a, in a I guess, the deep south, right, Alabama? Right, yeah, Robertsdale, Alabama, which is about an, yeah, about an hour's drive from Mobile. Yeah, yeah, he grows up in the deep south, and he takes a different career path, and his brain is wired totally different than a Johnny Ive. Why don't we get into right. that? Because then we're going to come to a, a, a crossing point, really a, a focal point where you come, your book basically says where they lost their soul. When Apple became a different company under Tim Cook uh, um, than it was from the Steve Jobs, Johnny Ive uh, relationship. Right, right. Cook Cook grew up in this small town. Um, in contrast to, to Johnny Ive, he, he didn't grow up with a father who, who nurtured his interests you know, per se, and, and what he would go on to do is his father hadn't gone to college, neither had his mother. So in many ways from, from, you know, his earliest days, Tim was kind of marked as a bit of an overachiever within his own family. Um, he really wanted to go to Auburn university, uh, growing up in Alabama, you kind of, you pick one of two colleges largely to go to either, you, you know, either Alabama itself or Auburn. He, he picked the latter. And when he went, when he got to Auburn, he studied industrial engineering. And it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating segment of the engineering world where you're focused on really human systems. You're looking for ways to make improvements to how people are operating machines or assembly lines or just, you know, logistics, just about anything to make small improvements so that everything becomes more efficient. Um, one of the central tenets and questions that that he was taught to ask is, um, you know, why, why is it done this way? And when somebody gives a stock answer, you know, the, the follow-up question is still why? And it's it's about thinking through new ideas for doing things that have become, become customary inside companies. Um, and he he goes on to become a a really distinguished talent quite early in his career. Uh, First at IBM where he would put in the hard work over Christmas break to kind of, to kind of run assembly lines in in Raleigh, North Carolina, where they were manufacturing computers and allow his bosses to stay home. He was, he was identified as a, as as a high PO, which is a high potential, um, you know, worker and, and by the way, that the, gave him a chance. Really, he, yeah, go he's ahead. only twenty three or so, right? Yeah, he's in his twenties. That gave him a chance in his twenties to go to go to Duke and get an executive MBA and have it paid for. It sharpens his his business mind a fair amount. 
Um, I think the biggest testament to, or like the biggest indication of what he was capable of was when he left IBM and joined a company called Intelligence Intelligent Electronics that was kind of a middleman in the in the in the PC era. They would they would take orders from customers who wanted computers, then they would assemble those computers to spec. And when he arrived, they had they had parts spread across five warehouses. And one of the first things he did was say, well, we're wasting a ton of time, you know, shuttling parts from these four warehouses to this one warehouse to assemble things and ship it off. What, what if we put all this stuff in one warehouse, you know, we'll cut, we'll cut our time, you know, in more than half and we'll be able to ship things quickly. And then to make shipment even faster, he was like, well, why don't we put that warehouse in Memphis right by the FedEx distribution center so we can get things out. And in many ways that helped begin to turn this company around. Um, and he went on to Compaq from there and he was, he was doing much of the same thing. He'd only been at Compaq about eight months when Steve Jobs called him and, and did an interview and he went in to tell his boss at Compaq that he was, he was going to leave for Apple and his boss pulls him aside and says, look, like I'll retire, I'm planning to retire soon. I'll retire early. I'll give you my job if you'll just stay. And I, I just thought that was wild. I asked his boss why, why he did that. And he said, well, I was a shareholder and I knew this guy was so good that he was going to increase the share price so much for Compaq that there was more value in me leaving my job um, and holding onto my shares than there was in me keeping my job and, and losing Tim Cook. And of course he goes on to Apple and they've increased their, since becoming CEO, they've increased their value by $2 trillion, um, which is just remarkable. You haven't seen a CEO succession story like that anywhere else in business history. Where, what, what need does Steve Jobs have at the time that he has to search, he's searching for a Tim Cook type figure? They're, they're, the quickest way to explain the state of affairs at Apple when Steve Jobs returned in 1997 was it was a hot mess. And, and the messiest part of all of it was the supply chain. Um, at the time, they were still manufacturing a lot of their own computers here in the U.S. and in, and in Ireland. Um, Tim Cook came in. Uh, assessed what they were doing and pretty quickly began pushing the company to reduce its inventory, which he, he has a, a turn of phrase around that. He calls inventory evil and says that it, you know, basically when you have a computer sitting around, it spoils like vegetables because you're constantly making improvements to the technology inside a computer. And if you don't sell it pretty quickly, it will become outdated relatively soon. So he, he streamlined their inventory so that they were better calculating the number of computers they needed to sell, how much demand there would be and what they would need to supply. And then he was able to, you know, further improve uh, their operations over the, over the next few years by striking up this partnership with Foxconn, um, which becomes a, a key uh, manufacturer and um, their primary, the, the primary partner for assembling their products over the next decade. Right. What people don't realize, which I, I didn't, well, let me just say, I didn't realize, is Tim Cook's taking a big risk by going to Apple. You have a company that's teetering on bankruptcy, uh, really, as you said, a, a, really a hot mess. And at the time, Compaq was a powerhouse. So he's jumping from an established company, the check will clear. He had a good pay package. Uh, I think it was, uh, he had stock options uh, of something, uh, I forgot, stock options. Or yeah, it was like about a million dollars in stock yeah. options. And I, I love that story because when you hear Tim Cook talk about his uh, decision to leave Compact to go to to go to Apple, he, he talks in this uh, romantic fashion about it. Um, it says, you know, I just, my heart, he says something to the effect of my heart just pulled me that way. It just said, go West, son, oh, yeah. go West. Um, and, and then uh, I talked to the recruiter and he was like, no, like, he definitely planned to take the job, but he told Jobs that if he was going to hire him, he needed a guarantee to pay the, out the same you know, stock award that he would have gotten at Compaq. So that to me is like the other side of Tim Cook. Um, he presents publicly quite well and he's very polished and um, he can he can uh, he can make the company 
Apple itself seemed to be called to a, you know, to, to higher, seemed to live to a higher calling, right? It's, it's about doing good in the world in some ways. And, but then behind the scenes, he's also incredibly practical and shrewd uh, when it comes to business matters. And, and this was an example of that early in his career when he left to go there. So now we get to the point where we have uh, Tim Cook in the company, you have Johnny Ive in the company, Apple is is just doing amazingly well. And then Steve Jobs gets really sick in 2011, where most of the year he can't even come, to, the last two years of his life, he can't even come into the office. Mm-hmm. And as we get closer, I think it was October, right, of 2011, mm-hmm. uh, after the um, presentation at the, um, it was a, what were they unveiling at the time on? Uh, they were at Town Hall unveiling the iPhone 4S, yes. which, given Steve was sick, had become known inside campus as the 4Steve iPhone. Right. 4S, 4Steve. So they finished this, and uh, Lorraine um, calls, uh, sends out a text or something out, calls them, mm-hmm. get over, and they're thinking, oh my gosh, maybe we screwed up with the product, but it's really to say goodbye. Uh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He, he brought in his his closest lieutenants. Apple is a very uh, centralized and hierarchical company with about, you know, at that time and still to this day, about ten to twelve people who make the bulk of decisions that determine what the company does week in week out. Um, and these lieutenants come in and they they have to say goodbye to him. And one of the first things that the company had done to prepare for his death was get the board to approve a large stock grant. To, to these top lieutenants because they wanted the world to know that even though Steve Jobs was not there, the people who were most loyal to him and understood how the company operated, operated would remain and continue to lead it forward. And so the last person that uh, Steve Jobs uh, speaks with is Tim Cook, right? Johnny Ive walks out right before he's, he's shaken, totally shaken. His, uh, half his, his world is collapsing here and and you describe how he goes into sudden type of state of depression or just lethargic. It's like the life was sucked out of him. And Tim Cook's the last guy to speak with him, and which was really an amazing testament to Apple, Jobs, and their board, that the day Jobs died, I think the stock didn't go down much. I think it was maybe down a quarter, half a point or a dollar, some, some little, it was some little amount. And uh, I remember reading at the time, they're saying that's... Um, Hopefully, what Berkshire Hathaway will happen after Warren Buffett dies, uh, because of the way the succession plan was put in. Because Cook's running the company for a while now, right? It's about two years or so. Or- right, right. He'd been leading the company while Jobs was sick, and Jobs had pulled him aside when he was ta- when he tapped uh, Tim Cook to become CEO, which was summer of summer of 2011, and told him, "Look, like." You're going to be leading the company. I'm still going to be there. Uh, I'm going to be a chairman. I'll be an advisor to you. But it's important, no matter what, that when you do things, you don't sit there and ask, what would Steve do? It's important to me that you just you do what's right. And this became a key piece of guidance for, for Cook because it really it freed someone who felt uncomfortable about his lack of expertise in some ways and in, in making and kind of designing and conceptualizing product in the product arena arena that was core to Apple's business. It freed him from feeling like obligated to spend a tremendous amount of time in that and allowed him to define the CEO he wanted to be for himself right, no, I have, uh, as opposed to trying to just ape what Jobs had been for all those years. I found it really fascinating that Jobs studied Polaroid, he studied Disney, and he didn't want to end up, Apple tend up like, what would Walt do after Walt Disney died, where the company just uh, basically stops in its tracks and is trying to live through the founder and their vision, which no one even knows anymore. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's really a guesswork. And here he was so bold to say, you know, find your own path and do the right thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, you know, it was, that was a key piece of guidance uh, for Cook. Um it, you know, it, it allowed him to focus on trying to maintain the team that, that Jobs had put together and then try to take this expertise he had from those days at Auburn, you know, studying human systems and figure out, okay, we, this whole system was built around this one man. How do, how do we 
how do we function and continue without him? Uh, Jobs for all intents and purposes was the chief technology officer, the, the chief design officer in many ways, the chief marketing officer. You know, he he was involved in all of intimately involved in all of those aspects of the business. And Cook, you know, in his place sets up a system where the emphasis on is on collaboration and leadership by committee rather than the autocracy that had really existed for a long time. Got it. So now, now we get to the point where, where uh, Jobs dies and the company is really at a crucial period of time. Uh, does it follow the school of Tim Cook and become a regular number crunching company, which looks at shareholder value and looks at nickels and dimes, which they never did. It was a cost, as you put in, was never, never, never a consideration when doing anything. It was to make the best product in the world. Uh, or uh, Tim Cook's way or Johnny Ives' way. And that's where you have that conflict, right? Right, right. It's kind of an unspoken power struggle that plays out over the course of the next decade. Initially, Johnny Ive kind of gets through his period of mourning and grief and uh, becomes galvanized by the Apple Watch project, which they embarked on around 2012 and brought forward and introduced to the world in 2014. And Tim Cook um, increasingly becomes focused on... um, on bringing some some financial dis- discipline to some of the work that they're doing, uh, and you see that namely in the the uh, the Apple Park project that we talked about, which Johnny Ive was involved on the design side, but Tim Cook brings in some of his best negotiators to make sure that Apple pays as little as possible for the glass, um, and that that becomes kind of a telling moment for the company going forward because that would increasingly become the type of thing that would happen over the next few years. You'd have um, what people might classify as right brain thinkers rotate off Apple's board and in their place, they were replaced by left brain thinkers and people Johnny Ive dismissed as quote unquote accountants. Um, and they, they had backgrounds either in operations or, um, you know, in the world of finance. And Johnny Ive leaves when? He, he, he grows disillusioned um, with, with some, of the, some of the changes. He, he really was tired and weary after working on the watch and tries to move into a part-time role uh, around 2015. He does shift into that role. He's focused primarily on new new products and their efforts in that arena, um, and then ultimately walks away in 2019. In his exit, um, you know, one of the things I hope people think about, or at least feel somewhat sympathetic to, or even repulsed by. I don't, I don't know. It depends on where you you may come down as a reader, but I hope you can appreciate that there's no easy way to leave a company that you've been at for a long time. Um, I think Johnny Ives' story and his exit are, you know, food for thought for anybody who's contemplating leaving a place that they've worked. Why is that? Why is that? Um, you know, this idea that he he went to a part-time role, it, it put a lot of, I don't know, it put it, it put his longtime colleagues in a difficult spot. The way the design studio had been set up to run it was structured so that he was regularly weighing in on the various iterations of a product before it was introduced to the world. And that, when I say regularly weighing in on it, it's like three times a week. And then, you know, he goes to part-time and he's coming in like once a month, you know, to review Mm -hmm. products. And, um, and, you know, at that point, they might have decided that they were going in a certain direction. He'd come in and say, no, 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 I prefer this. Then they have to go back to the drawing board, meet his specifications. It just created some tumult and wrinkle in a system that had been pretty well well ironed out up to that point. Um, and that's why, that's why I think it's interesting, you know. I mean, it's hard to know when you, when you love working at a place, it's hard to know when when the when the right time is to leave and and how the right way is to leave and i, I he, you can see him in his experience fumbling his way through them right and you know the the brilliance i think warren buffett said that tim cook is 
one of the most amazing CEOs uh, of our generation, of the business generation now. Uh, he takes over uh, after Jobs, let's call 2012 his first year. Sales are $156 billion, and they're making around $68 billion in profit. Uh, now, trailing 12 months, $385 billion, more than doubled revenue, and profit went from $68 billion to $167 billion. Astounding. These are astounding, yeah. astounding numbers. So, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a company, uh, I, I, I just wanted the small, short time we have left, you titled the book How Apple Became a Trillion-Dollar Company and Lost Its Soul. What, what do you exactly mean by lost its soul? I, mean, it's, it's, I want to emphasize both parts of that because there, there are two central figures in this book, Tim Cook and Johnny Ive. And the first is, has been key through the numbers you were just citing at turning Apple into a multi-trillion-dollar company. The latter... Uh, Johnny Ive was a creative soulmate of, of Steve Jobs. He, he created a partner uh, and creative soulmate of Steve Jobs. He, he literally soul of the company in the eyes of its its founder. And he walked out the door in 2019. And the, the reason he did so was that he grew increasingly disillusioned with this company that had long been a place where art led to commerce, where where he had the the purview to to be ambitious and not have cost um, question with some of his designs to a place where commerce increasingly dictated art because the company became so enormous and the expectations of Wall Street were so tremendous that that it that it had to bend to Wall Street's will. But eventually, you know, at some point in in, in this timeline, it would have had to, uh, regardless, right? Uh, it, uh, could a company continue on? like uh, the Johnny Ives um, vision without being grounded in finance? Uh, no, I, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think, I think it's less just the idea that could it not be grounded in finance? It's more of the opportunity cost when you become a certain size company, when you're putting up 300 plus billion dollars in revenue, you can't say, okay, well, let's make, um, let's make a new line of speakers that we're going to, we're going to make $500 million off of that. That doesn't, that that's not a worthwhile endeavor. It's not going to move the needle. Exactly. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to add enough sales to your, to your, uh, to your top line to, to justify the work that you're going to have to do for it. And so you're, you're, as you become that big, you increasingly have to make decisions that, a more nimble version of Apple wouldn't have had to to make, and there's sacrifices there. Right, right. So in the short time we have left in closing, you now have a front row seat. You've had a front row seat to Apple for a long time, right? Uh, you've had access to, I don't know, what, two, three hundred people that you interviewed for this book? Mm -hmm. uh, insiders, uh, people who worked at Apple who couldn't say that they, you know, because it's pretty much like the mafia, right? You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to share anything what goes on in Apple stays on in Apple. So I, I, all those anonymous sources you had. Um, where and you're you're now in San you're in San Francisco now, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So you you're around that crowd. You have a lot of contacts. You have a front row seat to what's going on there. I know you're not going to be 100 percent accurate because no one really could predict the future. Is where do you see Apple in five years? Not in terms of their money, in terms, but what what, what kind of company is it? I th you know, I think the company's ability to maintain its perch uh, as as the as the world's largest company is going to have more to do with geopolitical issues than whether or not it makes another revolutionary product. In a weird way, it's moved past some of the some of the benchmarks that it was once judged by, which is okay. Well, what, when's Apple going to come out with the next revolutionary product? That's less important right now for this company than how are they going to navigate a world where the tensions between the U.S. and China, these two, these two um, economic powerhouses that Apple straddles, how are they going to navigate uh, a world where the the fault lines are are kind of you know becoming ever increasingly shakier between those two places. Yeah, you know, there was just uh, just recently in the, in the quarterly um, re, um, earnings report, uh, earnings call, uh, Tim Cook said, you know, the China situation with the lockdowns, with COVID in Shanghai and all, 
are going to cost them close to $8 billion in revenue. So uh, to your point, a, a lot of the factors are way out of making a beautiful white box that makes you feel like you drew it out. There are going to be factors that uh, Apple's going to have to face and challenges, I should, I should say, yeah, obstacles. That uh, they, but you know what I I I just find that the the culture from what I know from the outside you know much better than I of course, uh, and the brilliance of Tim Cook, that like the glass they'll figure a way around it. I, I don't know I just uh, I don't think it's wishful thinking. Uh, I am an Apple shareholder have been for a long while, but uh, it, it's just it seems to be a type of company that uh, obstacles are really opportunities. Right. They, it's a type of company that if you decided to bet against them in, in 2011 after after Steve Jobs' death, you would you would really regret that. Um, you know, there <laughs> I can't tell you how many employees, you know, left over the years and did the right thing financially and diversified their their shares, but are also kicking themselves because they've watched Apple uh, Apple sh- share valuation just accelerate Amazing. since their departure. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know. Um, uh, so, if you had to guess, uh, what what do you how do you see them overcoming some of these challenges that they're going to be fa- or facing with now? Uh, do, do they see them start to manufacture um, a product in in the United States? I know the service business is is expanding greatly, uh, which includes App Store and and the App Store and and um, and iTunes and all those kinds of things that. Uh, you know, the, just I remember when they came out with the 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 uh, the app store. I saw the app as that's when I started investing in the company. I think it was 2012. I said that's going to be the business because it had my credit card on file. I think at the time it had 400 million credit cards on file, and I saw my son uh, buying apps every day. How easy it was to spend 99 cents. It was seamless. <laughs> they made right. it easy, and I'm saying, my right. gosh, you know, you have 400 million of those credit cards on file, and people just buying. Uh, and they're getting a piece of that for doing nothing. It's well, doing nothing, building the infrastructure. It's just absolutely amazing. I think he services right. up to forty or fifty billion dollars. Yeah, yeah. I think near term. I mean, the the you know one of the more brilliant maneuvers uh, Tim Cook you know instrumented over the past few years has been developing that that quote unquote services business, selling more software and apps across the iPhone uh, than they had previously. And that'll provide them with a bit of cushion, especially if we get into a period near term where uh, people hold on to their iPhone slightly longer because we go through some kind of an economic recession. You know, I think uh, or, 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 I think, or supply chain issue. Where you just right, or there's a ongoing supply chain issues like they've had with Shanghai and shutting down some of the factories there. The most pressing, you know, issue is trying to to get some manufacturing set up and spun up outside of of China itself. They've had mixed luck with that so far, and the results have been quite uneven. Um, you know, in India, they actually had to shut down some of the factories that they've set up there because of the worker conditions became problematic. Um, but that's that's really going to be, you know, top of mind for them going forward. Yeah, outstanding, folks. The name of the book is "After Steve: How Apple Became a Trillion Dollar Company It's Law and Lost Its Soul" by Trip Mickle. Trip, this is your first book? Yeah, first book. Wow, yeah. you got talent, guy. Really good stuff. I'm telling you, folks, this reads like a novel. Uh, you keep the reader engaged. You kept me engaged. And just when a story got a little too long in the tooth, you switched to something else. You know, you went back and forth with Johnny Ive, then Tim Cook, then back to <coughs> Apple, then back. Uh, really well done. It just keeps you reading. It really keeps you reading. Well done. I'm, I'm thrilled you enjoyed it and, and appreciate you having me on. Oh, my pleasure, man. I hope you sell a zillion books. Really great. And I hope the stock keeps going up and Apple keeps producing uh, great products because, uh, um, you know, our house is a total Apple I remember 2006 when I got an, uh, a Mac, and I remember how uh, the next couple of nights I went to sleep uneasy because I was so unfamiliar, and I said, how am I going to learn this? It's a whole new operating system, uh, and it just, you have to use Windows for so many years and then use the Windows operating system, and using a PC, this was alien, but it was just beautiful. We had a huge, huge uh, screen. I forgot it was 30 inches or something. Everything built into the computer is such a beautiful, elegant machine, and it looked beautiful on the desk. And uh, it took time, but uh, I, I, I have to say, this as uh, uh, I haven't touched a PC since 2006. You're not alone in that category, yeah. And I think they're, you know, they've done a good job of 
bringing on board new new Mac owners uh, of late too, because they've got these new custom chips that are performing outperforming a lot of the their competition um, in the PC market. And once you get into that ecosystem, it kind of sucks you in. Everything works mm-hmm. together, you know, which is just really amazing. All right, Trip, lots of continued success to you, man. Outstanding work. Once again, folks, after Steve, how Apple became a trillion-dollar company and lost its soul by Trip Mickle. Trip, we have to have you on again in, in, in some time from now just to see uh, how many things uh, change in the world and how Apple deals with that. Happy to come back anytime, and it's a good incentive to go write another book as well. So. <laughs> Great, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.